um, from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, which is on page 1238 in the Blue Bibles. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write... These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, except to hold on to what I have until I come, until what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'm going to pray for Nick as he comes up to preach. Dear Lord Father, thank you for Nick, who leads us so well. Thank you for the time he has put into preparing tonight's talk. Um, Thank you for your word. May you inspire our hearts and minds through uh, Nick's sermon this evening. Will you give him um, courage and wisdom to speak to us uh, at his best? Um, Yeah, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Beth. Uh, Thank you so much for reading for us tonight. Thank you, uh, Crispin, for leading us. I love the way you started the service there and thinking about, you know, the, the nature of a letter and a love letter and what its purpose is and what it, what it accomplishes. Uh, that's, that was really helpful. What did you say again? Like, I don't want to misquote you, but the love letter co- confirms the love to the beloved. Yeah, I was thinking, what does it do for the sender? And I'm not quite sure I have an answer, but that's what I was thinking about too. It's a means of expression. Yeah, it's, um, it's an assurance from the sender who can't be with the beloved in person. Uh, it was a good, good thought process. Thank you. And uh, thank you to uh, Kate and the team for leading us. I can't believe just how great the music is in this church. It's, it's really amazing. And just a shout out to Andrew Martin on bass there too. I don't know if you're picking up what Andrew's doing there during worship, but I mean... <laughs> He, he's doing some, some amazing stuff on that base, and then it's, it's amazing. So thank you, Andrew. Um, well, folks, uh, tonight it, the, the series, uh, again, is, is rooted in the premise that these letters in the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, and 
the, the scene is that the Apostle John, who's a very old man, he's in prison on the island of Patmos, and where the Greek islands are. Uh, and I've been to, to Patmos and been to the traditional site of where he was imprisoned. Uh, and um, he wasn't there, obviously. But he, he has a vision and, and the risen Jesus Christ appears to him and speaks to him and, and gives him the, these, this content to these churches in, in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and we're in the fourth of these, the church of Thyatira. Uh, and we've heard the church of Ephesus, uh, the church of uh, Smyrna and the Church of Pergamum. Amy, thank you so much for last week's message. Amanda and I were down at Warrnambool hanging out with Paul Pallet and, the, and Anita uh, for his induction. For those of you that have been around for a few years, you'll know Paul. Uh, so that was good, but we'll listen to the message later, and, and it was a really um, well-taught uh, message, Amy, and uh, you didn't shy away from any of the hard stuff in the letter, and hopefully tonight, by God's grace, I won't either. But I said this morning, I should have put Amy on this one because it's harder than last week, but <laughs> never mind. I'll do what I can. Um, but Thyatira, in terms of the cities that these letters are going to, was kind of one of the lesser cities. Um, it didn't really have a lot going for it in one sense, and maybe a bit like Adelaide. But it was... Um, I'm from Adelaide, so Adelaide's a beautiful city. But, you know, in terms of the cities around, it wasn't like one of the you know, New York's, London's, or it, it was a lesser city. Um, it was nevertheless important through commerce, wool, linen, apparel, dyed stuffs, leatherwork, tanning, and excellent bronze work. So it was a bit of a trade town. It was a tradies town. Um, and the trade guilds were inseparably intertwined with local religious observances. They posed a special problem uh, for the economic well-being of Christians. What that means is that you know you were part of the you know the the woolmakers guild or the the bronze makers guild, and they'd have these quarterly or annual gatherings, and they you know they they had religious aspects. They'd make offerings to gods. Um, they had really. Um, I guess, immoral aspects as well, that these, these were pagan party people. So if you're a Christian, you know, and you're kind of like, well, I'm not going to go to that, it, it could cost you economically. Maybe you won't get as many orders in your business and maybe you'll be excluded. So there was a price that the Christians were paying uh, in terms of trying to be faithful to Jesus and, and not participate in everything their culture was offering them to have to differentiate and at some point stand and say, no, I can't. I can't be part of that. I can't participate in that. I'd be unfaithful to God. And so we've called this letter Dear Compromise Church because they're having these challenges and uh, some within the church community uh, are kind of just saying, look, it's too hard. Just kind of go along with it, you know, and, and there's some weird teaching coming into the church and practices as well. So that's the context that uh, the letter is written into. There's a, a really lovely story in the book of Acts about a woman named Lydia who was from Thyatira. She was a wealthy, God-fearing Gentile. Now, a Gentile is just a, a shorthand way of saying someone who wasn't Jewish in the day. Um, so there was the Jewish people and everyone else. Um, she's uh, the first Christian in Europe. So she becomes a Christian when she hears Paul, the apostle, preaching and teaching one day down at the river. Uh, and her house appears to have been the meeting place for the church in Philippi. So she was a, a dealer in purple, which is interesting because Thyatira was a, a trade center for wool and dyed products. But this purple was super luxurious, and it was very rare, and it was made from the, the ground shells of a certain mollusk. 
and it was it was very expensive, very luxurious. A mollusk is like a you know like um, a shell, you know, or, or a crustacean. Um, that's as best as I know in terms of sea biology. But um, so she was a wealthy woman, she was a successful successful businesswoman, and she became a follower of Jesus. And it looks as though the church ended up being hosted at her house uh, for quite some time. Uh, and she was an important leader and member of the early church community. So there's Lydia. So as we go through the seven letters, these are the kind of five things that come through the letters. There's actually a structure within them. Thyatira is the longest letter. It's to like the, the least of all the towns, but it's the longest letter. And I like that. And I, I thought about it today. Like imagine you got a, you know, you got a, a Facebook request um, from, from Harry and Megan or, or the Queen. Uh, and you're like, wow, how did they even know me? We just got a letter one day, and, and it's from someone really famous. And they're just like, just checking in to see how you're going, and want to let you know I care about you. And you'd be thinking, how does this person even know me? I think there's something beautiful about these letters, the premise being that they're dictated to the Apostle John by, by the one true God, by, by Jesus Christ by the God the Father, Son, and Spirit speaking to these churches. So they're hearing from God, hey, God knows us. God hasn't forgotten us. We might be a tiny minority in this town. Everyone might hate us. We might be losing business because we're not going to all the, all the crazy parties and stuff. We're not off. But, you know, God knows us. God sees us. And so these five characteristics are in most of the letters. So the first one, uh, these five um, pillars, if you like. The first one is the characteristic. What does the letter tell us about Jesus? And it says, these are the words of the Son of God. That's pretty strong. Whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, like glowing hot metal. This is from the Son of God, the Holy Son of God, who sees, who sees you, who sees everything. And it's a beautiful image of power, of authority, but it's also an image that we see in the Bible at another time. And in Revelation 1, when John sees Jesus, when Jesus appears in his risen, glorified form, he describes what it was like. And actually, if you go to the book of Daniel, the prophet, um, 700 years earlier, he has a vision of a man that appears to him. He doesn't know who it is, but this man tells him about the future and speaks to him. And he describes the vision. And I just, for the sake of Bible nerds out there, I like this sort of thing. Uh, just have a look at Revelation, how John describes seeing Jesus. And have a look at Daniel, the prophet Daniel, how he describes this vision of someone like a son of man. Uh, let's just have a look. It's re- I find it really interesting. Maybe you will too. There before me, this is Daniel is in uh, the bold. That's... The book of Daniel, the non-bold is Revelation. There before me was a man dressed in linen. Uh, John says, um, someone like a son of... um, Sorry, I think I've got them around the wrong way. Which one's which? Oh, now I've done it. Anyway, let's just go through. I'm pretty sure the bold bold is Daniel. Um, So they're both dressed in this linen. Um, Daniel says, this man had a belt of fine gold around his waist. John says he had a golden sash around his chest. Um, his face was like lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, says Daniel. Um, John says the eyes of Jesus, the risen Jesus, were like blazing fire. And actually, if you really want to get full Bible nerd, if you go to the Greek translations of both of those, they're almost identical from the Old 
the, the Greek Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Daniel says that the arms of this man and legs were like the gleam of burnished bronze, like glowing metal. Um, John says the feet of Jesus were like glowing bronze in a furnace. Um, Daniel says the voice of this man was like the sound of a multitude. And then John says the voice of the risen Jesus was like the sound of rushing waters. Like imagine Niagara Falls, just this powerful voice. Daniel says, when this man appeared, I had no strength. My face turned deathly pale and I fell into a deep sleep. He just fell flat on his face before this man. And John says, when I saw Jesus, when the risen Jesus appeared, I fell at his feet as though dead. The power was so overwhelming. And then Daniel says, a hand touched me and said, do not be afraid, Daniel. And John says, then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. So who was this being, this man in the book of Daniel? And why does he look so much like Jesus? It's interesting, isn't it? I'll leave that one with you to think about. Okay, let's move on. The compliment that Jesus gives uh, to the church at Thyatira is really beautiful. I know your deeds, your love. And the word there is the, the word for God's love in the Bible. Agape, the unconditional love and, and sacrificial love. I know your love. I know your faith, your service and your perseverance that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now, I don't blame you if you don't remember, but three weeks ago we did Ephesus and their kind of their criticism was that they had forsaken their first love. They'd given up on, on their love in some ways for Jesus and for one another. Whereas here the Thyatirans, Jesus says to them, you haven't given up on, on the love you had at first. You're still loving me. You're still loving one another. You're serving. You're doing good things. Uh, you're living lives of service and, and, um, and, and love and, and good deeds, and you're persevering. So it's a beautiful compliment. And we need to hear this in our lives here too, that God sees. God, God knows when we when we do offer up our lives, when we, when we pay a price, when we do sacrifice, when we do serve and no one knows or no one else sees, God sees and he notes and, and he, he ad- admires that uh, in, in his people when that happens. And it's beautiful that Jesus compliments them and encourages them. But he's kind of the master surgeon and, and you know, it's great that things are going well in some ways, but hey, let's get to the heart of some of the problems here because unless these are addressed all that other good stuff's just going to end up going by the by anyway so he says this to them nevertheless i have this against you you tolerate that woman jezebel who calls herself a prophet but by her teaching she misleads my servants my people into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols so in the time um, around the temples and the pagan worship, there was you know, a blend of, of, of idol worship, of offering food to idols, to, to false gods. There was also kind of cultic sexual, sexual practices like related to the religious um, you know, offerings and so forth. So it was a pretty debauched culture. And it seems that Jezebel, we don't know whether it's a literal person or whether she's representative of a group. Uh, within uh, the Thyatiran church community. Uh, just what we've heard about the Nicolaitans, you know, this group. We don't know a lot about them, but just that they were teaching some pretty crazy and weird stuff. We're 
not sure. So it could be either literally a, a, a female leader in this, in this community who's leading people astray with false and, and dangerous teaching. Um, either way, it's fairly serious. And um, I'll talk about Jezebel in just a moment because it's an Old Testament reference. Um, but I want you to note who this letter is sent to. In Thyatira, it's a city. There's lots of people. There's lots of different things happening. Who is this letter sent to? The church. Sent to the church. It's not kind of a polemic or an apologetic against the whole wider culture. It's not telling the church to get out there with placards and take a stand. Um, It's sent to the church. Jesus is addressing the church community. He's not addressing Thyatira, the wider culture. I just want you to keep that in mind. Let's look at Jezebel. Uh, The Old Testament, the original Jezebel of the Old Testament, you can read about her and her husband Ahab in in 1 Kings 16 and onwards. Uh, She passionately promoted the worship of the Canaanite deity Baal, other gods in the area. Uh, And she was judged by God and she met a violent death. It's actually, it's, it's really, anyway... I use this as an excuse sometimes. It's not very good. I like, I don't mind violent movies, you know, war movies and stuff. And, and Amanda's very sensitive to that because she's normal. And um, <laughs> so sometimes, you know, she might say, oh, Nick, you know, why did you watch something like that? And I'll kind of go, well, look, you know, if I really want violence, I can just go to the Old Testament. Um, and that's not really helpful, but it, um, but it's true, there is lots of violence there, and sometimes violence, it's never justifiable or good, but it can teach us and warn us. And Jezebel met a very violent death, quite gruesome. The modern Jezebel here in Thyatira um, was leading people away, like the Old Testament Jezebel, leading them away from God. And we need to be aware of that, that we, we often say here at church community, you know, we, we kind of, you know, teach and preach the the scriptures, uh, I don't have the only perspective on it. I, I don't necessarily claim my way of reading the text is, is the only right way. But it's a public book. You can read it for yourself. You can explore these things. You can think for yourself. And you shouldn't just take everything or anything you hear from a Christian leader or a prophet or whoever and just assume that it's right and true and good. You have a responsibility to search it out to ask questions, to read the scriptures, to do your own investigations. Uh, you can do that. You know, faith is, is for everyone. It's not just, you know, for some particular leaders like Jezebel or others to be telling people what God says or what God thinks. And especially, I think, in our culture, I'd just say as a word of caution, be a little bit cautious about people who claim to be prophets. Uh, I just put that out there. I'm not picking on anyone or saying anything. But just be a little bit cautious and careful of people who claim authority to speak from God and for God. Um, I'd just say from this letter, we should be a little bit cautious. Anyway, let's move on. I want to say a word about women because you might get the sense from this, wow, it's pretty hard on this woman, Jezebel. Well, actually in the Bible, there's some really positive examples of women and women prophets. So Jezebel was a bad example. I just want to quickly look at some good examples. Miriam, uh, she was the sister of Moses. Um, She was a prophet. Uh, Deborah, from the Old Testament, the time of the judges, she was a prophet. She was also leading Israel, which is like a fairly big deal. 
Um, Anna, at the birth of Jesus, when he's brought to the temple, she's called a prophet. Philip the evangelist in the book of Acts, he has four daughters who prophesy. Um, Phoebe was a deacon in the church at Rome. Junia was outstanding among the apostles. There's a sense in which that can mean, and we think it means that she was a leader among the apostles, like had an apostolic ministry. Priscilla and her husband Aquila taught about Jesus together. There's lots of good examples in the Bible of women, uh, you know, doing God's work and God's ministry and, and leading and teaching. So let's not just um, be too hard on the. The, the women here, especially not International <laughs> Women's Week. It's quite the reading for International Women's Week, isn't it? Um, so that, that's uh, just an aside there. But let's go to the command. What does Jesus say uh, to the church? He says, I've given her time to repent. Now let's just stop there. I think that's really beautiful. Like this is a, here's someone, let's just say it's a real person, not just a movement, but there is a group of them. He's given them time to repent. Isn't that gracious? In the Old Testament, there's a constant refrain that comes through. If you read the Old Testament, it's like a creed. And it says, The Lord God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness for a thousand generations. That creed comes right through the Old Testament. The Lord God is gracious. He's full of grace. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in love. And here we see that slowness to anger. We see that graciousness. We see that compassion. Here's a woman who's a, a movement, a group who are tearing a church apart, who are leading people away from God. And Jesus says, I've given her time to repent. Isn't that beautiful? That's how God treats us. God doesn't want to judge us and destroy us and um, you know, condemn us. He wants to bring life and, and, and love and flourishing to our lives. He, he wants us to grow and, and change, and, and he gives us time. It's really beautiful. I guess on the other hand, there is a point, you know, where enough's enough. And, and God's given enough time to a person, a group, a church, a nation. And that comes through in the letter as well. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but if she is unwilling, and there's the key thing there, a willfulness to keep pushing against God. If she's unwilling, um, but she is unwilling, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. Sin and disobedience ultimately always bring more suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her, who follow her ways, suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I'll strike her children dead. That seems to be a symbolic reference to those who follow and take her teaching, not literal children. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. What we do does matter. We are saved by grace. God is gracious. God gives us time. God understands our context and our circumstances. God knows what it's like for us, and he has compassion and mercy. And, but when we keep persisting in, in willful disregard, willful disobedience, he says, there comes a point when my threshold of tolerance reaches um, a point where he acts. Let's have a quick look 
at the topic of sexual immorality because I know that's what you come to church for, right? Um, Pornia is the Greek word used here in this letter. It's used throughout the New Testament. Uh, it's the word translated sinful, uh, sexual immorality, fornication. It, it basically gathers up a cluster of things around sexual immorality. Um, it refers to all physical sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. In the New Testament, this is uh, from the Dictionary of the New Testament, Theological Dictionary, the New Testament is characterized by an unconditional repudiation or rejection of all extramarital and unnatural intercourse. In this respect, it follows to a large degree the judgment of the Old Testament and Israelite preaching. That is, in shorthand, the New Testament follows the ethic and the revealing of God's heart and desire for sexuality from the Old Testament. It's, it's not different. And we see this in, in Moses, uh, we see it in Jesus, we see it in Paul, a similar message and a similar um, teaching about sexuality. So Moses in the Ten Commandments and many other places in the Old Testament, uh, there's, there's warnings and teachings against sexual immorality. Jesus talks about uh, the evil that comes out of our hearts and one of those things among many is sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed. Uh, it's not that there's a hierarchy of, of sins. Uh, greed is, is evil. Uh, so is deceit. Arrogance, slander. I mean, gosh, who hasn't slandered someone? You know, Jesus is saying this is all evil. But he does call pornea, sexual immorality. Uh, he calls it out and says that this is not his will for us, what he has for us. And the Apostle Paul also um, talks about sexual immorality through his letters, as do other New Testament writers. Now, I guess at this point, it's like, oh, here we go again. The church is hung up on sex and, you know, or just people are like, oh, is that all we hear about, you know? No, it's not, but it's important. And if we just note our culture at the moment, if we just note what's happening in our own country around uh, the damage that sexual... Uh, expression unrestrained or unchecked can do. Um, it's in the very halls of our parliament where there are situations that are being brought into the public domain where people have been damaged, allegedly, I should say, um, just so I don't get sued or anything, um, by sexual immorality, by sexual abuse. Um, it's a beautiful gift and it's a wonderful gift from God but it's a fire that can warm and bless. It's a fire that can destroy and cause great damage and devastation as well. So no, the church and the Bible is not hung up on sexuality. It's just that we need to be uh, hearing from God his intention and purposes for human sexuality. Uh, and, and clearly here, his intention is not uh, for human beings to misuse this or abuse this uh, gift of sexuality. You see it in Revelation right at the end, the very end. These are some of the last words of Jesus in the Bible, the risen Jesus. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that's a kind of reference to salvation, who place their trust in Jesus, that they may have the right to the tree of life, they'll live forever. They may go through the gates into the city, that's the eternal heavenly city. But outside... Those who aren't welcome are the dogs. We won't get into that just the moment. It's a, a sort of synonym for something else. Um, those who practice magic arts, like false worship, the sexually immoral, the pornea, 
the murderers, the idolaters, those who worship idols and don't worship God, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Like they're not part of this heavenly kingdom, according to Jesus. I don't write this stuff. I just pass it on uh, and you can, as I say, continue to work through it and wrestle with what it means for you personally. I'm not here to police your sex life or your private life. Uh, But this letter was public. It was written to the church. It was read in the churches. Uh, So let's talk publicly about it. I think our cultural moment at the moment, I'll just note a few things which I think are are falsehoods and myths in our culture which feed into this misunderstanding about sexuality. Um, One of them is sexual experience is the highest level and form of pleasure that humans can experience. If that were true, heaven's going to be really boring because there's no sex there. Sex is merely a physical activity. No, it's not. According to the Bible, it's a spiritual activity as well, and it, it has a spiritual component to it which you wonder, why does Jesus talk about this? It's not as though our relationship with Jesus has that physical aspect, but it's a spiritual thing. When, when we open ourselves up sexually in the wrong ways, we're opening ourselves up spiritually to the wrong things too. Denying or oppressing sexual feelings and desires is harmful. I don't know that that's even true. I'm sure it's not, but that's something in our culture, like oh, if you deny your, your feelings, if you repress them, you'll do yourself harm. I don't know that anyone's ever died from not having sex. Maybe there's someone out there that we don't know about, but I just think that's ridiculous. There are no consequences for unrestrained and boundary-free sexual expression. That's what our culture believes. There's no consequences. Well, actually, there are, um, and we're seeing some of that in public right now. The right side of history is a progressive and non-traditional and de-Christianized, secularized march towards progress. Like we just throw off these old-fashioned, you know, religious constraints around sexuality and just kind of free things up. Everyone will be a lot happier. Uh, I don't think that's true either. And I think experience and our cultural moment bear that out. I would say this just to kind of wrap this up a little bit. If the Bible can't be trusted on what it says about human sexuality, then can it be trusted on what it says about justice, about forgiveness, about love, about helping the poor, about caring for the earth, about racism or welcoming refugees? If we can't trust the Bible in what it's saying to us about human sexuality, why should we trust it on anything else? And I think sometimes as Christians, we see this in Thyatira, we kind of divide. And the Jezebel group were kind of like, oh, you know, what's the big deal? We're free, God loves us, you know, just do what you want to do, be what you want to be, you know, go to the parties, you know, sure, there's like sex stuff happening or whatever, but hey, business is good, right? Um, you know, and then uh, there's this other saying, no, I don't think we should be living like this. I think this isn't what, what God has for us. And so who, who kind of adjudicates this? Well, Jesus comes in with a letter and says, well, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm not on the Jezebel group side here. Uh, I'm on the don't participate in the wider culture in these idolatrous and sexually immoral ways. That's not what I want for you. That's not what I have for you. That's not the best for you. And then I think in that as well, we can think that Jesus' way is restrictive and pleasure-sapping and that, you know, if we really throw our lot in with God, 
our life's just going to be miserable. He's not going to let us do anything fun. I used to think that, you know, like if, if I was loving doing something or enjoying something in life, I'd be thinking, this clearly can't be of God because I like this. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking legitimate things here. Um, there's this sense of, oh, God's will. If it's God's will, it's going to be miserable. <laughs> it's going to be heavy. It's going to be unenjoyable. It's going to be, you know, sapping my, my joy. It's actually the opposite that the way of Jesus leads to life. It leads to joy. It leads to freedom. Uh, It leads to truth. It leads to beauty. It leads to hope. And I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, who who was imprisoned by the Nazis and who lost his life at the age of 39 for his stand for Jesus, for not compromising his faith and just going along with the Nazi regime because it was easier to do. He lost his life. He wrote this, The commandment of Jesus is not a spiritual shock treatment. Jesus asks nothing of us without giving us the strength to perform it. His commandment never seeks to destroy life, but to foster, strengthen, and heal it. Discipleship means joy. Following Jesus is the path to joy, the path to life, the path to freedom. So let's look at the command that Jesus gives. To the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I won't impose anything, any burden on you except just hold on to what you have, keep doing what you're doing, keep loving, doing good deeds, keep having faith, keep serving, keep persevering. Um, Just keep doing that. That's the way I want you to live. And that deep, those deep, secret kind of thing that's a, an allusion to maybe some particular philosophies and teachings where you know you have to have this special knowledge and special revelation to really be in with God it's like no it's it's just not needed at all and then he says the commitment that he's going to make to them this is his promise to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end I'll give them authority over nations, and that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's from the Old Testament. It's a prophetic um, verse pointing to the Messiah from the Old Testament. Just as I've received authority from my Father, I will give that one also the morning star. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This beautiful picture that Jesus says, I, I have such wonderful things ahead for you. Authority means the, you know, the, the, the right to join with God in his ongoing creation, his ongoing work, uh, to be uh, able to be part of that work and to have a place in it. God sharing with us his, uh, his authority and his leadership. Uh, into the future, into eternity. It's a promise of, of great life and blessing. And then the morning star, what is the morning star? Jesus says, I'll give you the morning star. And it's a beautiful phrase. And uh, we know from the book of Revelation that Jesus is the bright morning star. He says in, in the very last words he speaks in the book, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the A and the Z, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, that's King David, and the bright morning star. Jesus says, if you persist, if you follow me, I'll give you myself. I'll, I'll share my life with you, my, my wisdom, my joy, my power. 
my love. This is what I will give you. I'll give you myself. This is the beloved, the one who sends the letter to the, to the church in love, says, I'll give you my love. I'll share my life with you. I want to walk with you in that heavenly eternal kingdom. And it's a beautiful promise, a beautiful picture for us. No one loves us more. No one wants our flourishing, our joy, our, our life to be filled with, with goodness more than, than Jesus does. And this morning, uh, I came in a bit early. I like to come in Sunday mornings, and it's a really beautiful time just spending some time in prayer and, and praying for you all and, and just offering up to God the services for the day. And, and I was praying in here this morning, and I, I saw this cross. It was kind of just hanging over there somewhere, and I saw it there, and I just had this thought, it's Easter coming up. You know, we should, we should put the cross up there just, just as a focal point. And as I kind of carried it over... I got splinters, and I started to bleed. And I just paused for a moment. <laughs> and I was just here, I was just holding the cross, <laughs> looking at my finger with some blood coming out, and just thinking of Jesus, <laughs> thinking of him being on the cross, dying for me, for my sin, my sinfulness, dying for the world giving his life in love and just overwhelmed in that moment by his grace and by his love and by his mercy. And I just kind of wanted to hug the cross and, and say, Jesus, I love you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you are compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. And it was beautiful. And here Jesus says to the church, this is what, what you'll have as you follow me, as you trust me. As you give your life to me, I'll give you myself, the life and love and light of, of his eternal being he'll share with us. And he is the source of life. He is the source of our hope. He is the source of our forgiveness and our love. And, and he offers that love and forgiveness to all of us tonight. Let me pray as the team comes up. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love this church so much that through the Apostle John, this letter comes. Thank you that you spoke to the church, that you, you spoke truth, that you spoke with love. Thank you that you don't want to crush us, you don't want to condemn us, you don't want to take away our joy, uh, our hopes, our dreams. Thank you that um, you are good and your love endures forever. Thank you that that you have made a way by your death and your blood for us to be forgiven and washed and, and purified from our sin and forgiven. Thank you that you are patient with us. Thank you that you tell us the truth, that if we continue to rebel, if we continue to be willful and, and push against you and turn away from you, that you hand us over, you let us go, and we end up hurting ourselves, hurting others, and suffering. Thank you that you are gracious to take us back. Like the prodigal son, you, you receive us back. And I pray, Lord, tonight for, for all of us, perhaps those who are walking with you in contentment now and who are doing good deeds and, and, and loving and serving and, and persevering. Uh, Lord, thank you for that, that your grace is giving us the power to do that. Lord, for those who are, who are stuck, uh, who feel they're stuck in some way or 
Um, they, they're just going through a really dark time, a difficult time. Lord Jesus, be that bright morning star for them. Shine light into their lives. Lord, for those who are, who are feeling like that prodigal son, who have turned away, who have been willful, Lord, help them know that your heart is restoration. Your heart is forgiveness. Your heart is mercy. And as that prodigal son came back to the father, not knowing whether he'd be condemned or the father would chase him away in anger, the father runs out to meet him and hugs him and kisses him. Thank you, God, that no one loves us like you love us. Thank you that no one knows us like you know us. Thank you, Jesus, that on the cross we see you are worthy of all of our lives, our devotion, our love. You are worthy of it all, Lord. There's no offering we could make to you uh, that would be able to pay you back for the great love and mercy of your gift of salvation to us. So, Lord, let us offer up our lives as a living sacrifice. Let us put away sin that so easily entangles. And, Lord, let us not compromise with the world, uh, but put you first and not... um, and not waver from that path of walking with you and following you along the way. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for being the bright morning star. Thank you for your love. Amen.